Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the 12th century German nun and polymath Hildegard of Bingen. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. This episode will include discussions of period typical misogyny and homophobia, including from Hildegard herself. It'll also include discussions of chronic illness, migraine and hallucination, and some discussions of sex. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content. Chronic Mm. illness, polymaths, and homophobia is like the gay (laughs) convent experience, truly. I feel like to some degree that's still the gay experience now. Yeah, that's (laughs) Like every gay person I know has some kind of uh, chronic illness and also 75 different interests that they're studying all the time. The only difference is they're not in a convent. The convent's just like Fitzroy. Okay, so I'm going to do a very short lit review before we begin today. Was that sarcastic? No, that was genuine. Oh, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a significant collection of letters written by Hildegard herself. Oh, handy. 300 and something. Hang on, what year was she from? She's born in 1098. That's such a good deal for someone born in 1098. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing research on a 20th century figure from whom we have like two letters or something, but this... <laughs> 11th century nun can go off, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we have those. And then there were two biographies written by monks who knew her. Both of these men worked as her secretary at various times. And one of those biographies also includes snippets of an autobiography written by Hildegard herself. So we're really set for sources. Incredible. (laughs) That's not what I expected at all. (laughs) Did she write in her autobiography, like, I'm in love with my girlfriend, Sister John the Baptist, or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that. Okay. So... As I said, Hildegard was born in the year 1098, near what's now called Bermersheim von der Herr. I'm sorry, Germans. <laughs> <laughs> I did my best. And How that- do you spell der Herr? D-E-R. Okay. Like the article. And then H-O-H-E. So Bermersheim is in southwestern Germany. Have we been in Germany before? We've been in Prussia before, so like, yeah. Oh, yes. But we're in Germany proper, which is kind of exciting. We're in what is still Germany today. At the time, it's part of the Holy Roman Empire, which is centered on Germany, but bigger than Germany. Yeah. The Holy Roman Empire was centered on Germany? Yes. Yes. Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Probably we don't have time to unpack the Holy Roman Empire. (laughs) Yeah, when I wrote my script, I had a whole bit about the Holy Roman Empire. I was like, okay, better explain what the Holy Roman Empire is, why it exists, and everything. And then I was like, no, I'm just going to say, think of it as Germany, but bigger. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And we've unearthed the Holy Roman Empire at all already, so I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Okay, so it's big Catholic Germany. Correct. So Hildegard was one of at least eight children of Hildebert and Matilda, who were wealthy members of the nobility. From childhood, Hildegard had visions from God. Okay. Wild. We're going to talk more about like what this might actually be from our perspective, so just accept this for the minute. So this begun at the age of three when she says she, quote, saw such a great light that my soul quaked. So how common are visions from God? So... There definitely are contemporaries of Hildegard who also had visions from God, and there were kind of, you know, expected cultural norms around uh-huh. visions from God. Like Hildegard, for example, she says she's always awake during her visions, she's always conscious, but other people would go into trances or have visions while they were asleep, and so her being awake was 
unusual. Mm-hmm. So obviously that shows that there, you know, were expectations around visions. That said, it's not like every little German boy was walking around talking to God. <laughs> Hildegard does say that, you know, as a young child at first, she was quite open about her visions and she talked about them with other kids. And she talks about like, you know, she saw a pregnant cow and she predicted what the calf would look like. And she got it right because she could see the future because of God and like this kind of stuff. But as she got older, she started to realize that the other kids didn't have visions and she kind of got embarrassed about being different from the other kids and stopped talking about her visions. I love how this is simultaneously such a relatable child experience and also just nothing to do with what (laughs) it's like anymore. That's very interesting. Is three very young to be having visions from God? like within the norms of the time or did children commonly? I didn't read about this specifically while I was researching Hildegard, but I have read many stories of saints before that had visions from childhood. Okay. So I think it's pretty normal. Cool. All right. Just a normal little German girl having visions from God. Yeah. Cool. What did the calf look like? I don't know. <laughs> God, I was oh, doing someone, research. someone doesn't get visions from God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I wanted to mention the visions because they'll obviously come back later, but we don't really have anything more to say about them this time because Hildegard really was just keeping them to herself. Yeah. So at a young age, Hildegard was dedicated by her parents to the church, that is, to life as a nun, which again was quite normal at the time. There's some confusion about what age exactly this occurs. Guibert, who's one of those two monks that wrote a biography of her, tells us, quote, when she was about eight years old, she was enclosed at the nearby monastery of Dissi-Bodenberg. So is Guibert French or is his name just French? I don't actually know his background. I mean, maybe that's a German pronunciation of Guibert too. How is it spelled? G-U-I-B-E-R-T. Guibert. So Guibert tells us that when she was about eight years old, Hildegard was enclosed at the nearby monastery of Dissi-Bodenberg. But a contemporary biography written even earlier, even closer to Hildegard's life than Guibert's biography, and this is a biography of another woman at the convent named Jutta, this biography tells us that Hildegard entered Dissi-Bodenberg at 14. So historian John Van Engen makes sense of the difference by suggesting that Hildegard was promised by her parents to religious life at eight, but didn't actually enter the monastery until 14, which makes sense. Sure. But we don't know for yeah. sure. <laughs> I'll allow that. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Good analysis. <laughs> so Hildegard, Jutta, and a few other women were enclosed at Dissi Bodenberg as anchorites, which are basically recluses who were confined to a cell attached to the monastery and devoted their lives to prayer. Could they hang out with each other? Yeah, they were all in the one cell, as I understand it, and they interacted with the outside world through a window in their cell, through which people would come and talk to them and food would be passed and so on. Oh, God. So they literally can't go outside. We don't have much information about what exactly their circumstances were. We only have this comment, again, from one of Hildegard's biographers that they had this window in their cell that they interacted with people through. There's various examples of this practice around this part of Europe, and some of them are literally walled up in a cell, and some of them are actually kind of coming out and talking to the monks in the monastery they're associated with the mention of the window makes me think they were genuinely just in the cell yeah i'm gonna try very hard to you know be non-judgmental but they're like a culture you know and just try to understand it on its terms but they they absolutely are like imprisoned teenagers here (laughs) that's a little bit uncomfortable yeah hildegard herself was very critical later on of the practice of giving children to monasteries or convents at a young age but she saw 14 as old enough to consent to that and she saw herself as consenting to that what about the others Jutta was older than hildegard and had also decided to go into this monastery and that was against her family's wishes Uh uh-huh Okay. So she obviously also chose this life. We don't really know about the other women. Okay. 
Can they leave? They could leave, yeah. For, you know, spoilers, Hildegard doesn't spend her whole life in this cell. Okay. That's a a locked room episode. (laughs) I guess that's fine then, sure. Yeah, they can and do leave. When they went into this life, it was expected that this was their life and they wouldn't leave. So Guibert talks about the ritual of putting them in this cell and he says that, quote, in the manner of those who are given over for the last offices of funeral rites, they were buried by the abbot of the place and my brothers as if truly dead to the world. So <laughs> so intense. That is quite intense. It is very intense, yeah. but at the same time, the reality is these women don't all spend their lives yeah. locked in this cell. And, like, this is a bit of a kind of obtuse question, but it is a genuine one. So they're in there, like, praying or whatever. Yeah. What are they hoping to achieve? So every day they pray what's called the Divine Office, which is a cycle of eight prayers that happens throughout the day, starting kind of in the middle of the night and going all the way through to the evening. And that was something that Benedictine monks and nuns, which is the kind of monks and nuns that they are, just did all day every day. And they see that as both, you know, glorifying God and also beneficial for their community around them. People from the community would ask the nuns or the monks to pray for them for various things. And they think they'll, like, get kind of material benefit for the community if they do this. Probably more spiritual benefit than material benefit for the community. I mean, like, like the crops will be good or whatever, not like they'll have lavish purple robes and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They think that they're benefiting their community and also benefiting probably themselves and their own souls and glorifying God. Okay. Let the entombed sleepover commence, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) When not praying, Hildegard and the women in her cell would have spent their time on studying, craft, and copying out religious texts. That honestly sounds like an all right time. (laughs) (laughs) Like, as kind of life at this time goes. Yeah, and, you know, as I mentioned, like, Yuta chose this life herself, Mm. and as your options as a woman at the Mm. time were, you can see why some people would have chosen this one. Yeah. Were there, like, none options that didn't involve being entombed? Yeah, no, there were nuns who weren't entombed as well. These women were specifically anchorites, which are the ones who are walled up in a cell, but there were also nuns who were just Just living in a convent and could go out and interact with their community a bit more. And that's what we'll see Hildegard become later in life. Yeah. Okay. So in later life, Hildegard would often describe herself as being uneducated. It's unlikely that she had any formal education before entering Dissi-Bodenberg. And as a woman, she would never be able to undertake the sort of formal study that was offered by cathedral schools and universities at the time. So her education was largely administered by Jutta and by one of the monks at Dissi-Bodenberg, likely a man named Volmar, who would remain a close friend of Hildegard throughout her life. Her education would largely have been structured around the prayers of the Divine Office, so she would have learnt Latin through listening to, reading and saying the prayers, and also learnt to play the psaltery, which is a sort of harp to accompany the prayers. So did she, like, know Latin, or did she know Latin by rote? She wrote in Latin later in her life, so all her written works that we have are in Latin, but it's apparent from them that she didn't know Latin from formal study as such. She knew Latin through reading it and saying it in prayer. Okay. So, like, her grammar isn't always perfect. Yeah, okay, yeah. That must turn out a very interesting set of grammatical decisions. Yeah. Which I assume is kind of beyond us in this episode, (laughs) but I'm sure there's some interesting scholarship on, like... Ecclesiastical Latin by people who are kind of patching it up as they go along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, like, a lot of men in the church would have, like, studied it formally and formally mm. studied grammar in kind of the way we learn that now. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, for women, I think most of them would have learned in this way. Okay, that's quite cool. So as Hildegard got older, the community of women at Dizzy Boddenberg grew, probably largely just due to issues of space. New arrivals were no longer admitted as anchorites and they weren't enclosed in the cell, but they kind of just entered as nuns and it became more of a convent in its own right attached to the monastery rather than a single cell that they were locked into. So previously until then, would new people come and they'd just like open the door, chuck them in and be like, have fun, Hildegard and Yuta. <laughs> so Hildegard... Here's a new friend. <laughs> yeah, so Hildegard, Yuta and the women that entered Dissi with them were the first anchorites at Dissi Oh, okay. And Dissi at the time was... It had existed for a while, but it was kind of being reestablished, so it was quite new okay. in this incarnation as a monastery. So the whole thing was just being set up. Mm-hmm. I assume there were women throughout Hildegard's teen years that did join them in the cell. Yeah. And I guess they would just did that ceremony again and then locked them in. But did they have lights in the cell? I assume so, given that we know they spent their time like writing yeah. out scripture and reading psalms and that kind of thing. Okay. So we're going to jump forward now quite significantly in Hildegard's life to the year 1136 when she was almost 40. So she spent those first 40 years of her life in this convent at Dissi Burdenberg. In the cell. Not in the cell. (laughs) Okay. She has come out of the cell. She's come out of her cage. (laughs) Let's find out if she's doing just fine. So in 1136, Jutta passed away. Following Jutta's death, Hildegard was unanimously elected by her sisters as the new magistra of the nuns at Dissi Burdenberg looking after what was now basically a small convent. So while Jutta was alive, Hildegard had confided in Jutta about her visions, and Jutta had in turn told one of the monks at Dissi Boddenberg, likely Volmar, though we're not sure. But it seems that up until this point, nobody else knew about her visions, or they weren't widely publicized. Five years after Jutta's death, however, in 1141, Hildegard had a particularly significant vision. As she describes it, The heavens were opened and a blinding light of exceptional brilliance flowed through my entire brain. And suddenly I understood the meaning of the expositions of the Psalter, so the Psalms, the Evangelists, and other Catholic books of the Old and New Testaments. And with this vision, she says, came the commandment from God to, quote, say and write what you see and hear, that is to make her visions public. Okay. It's quite a big file she's just downloaded. Yeah. So, not to be, like, extremely cynical, but, like, chronologically, not in her life, but in the evidence, when do we first have information about her having visions? So, she writes a visionary work, a book about her visions, basically, which she completes in 1151, and we had a copy of that from the convent where she later lived, from her lifetime, Uh but that was lost in World War II, so we don't have it anymore. Uh sucks yeah so look i don't think there's dispute about the fact that she believed she was having these visions or she said she was having these visions during her life and the people around her believed her okay i don't think there's something invented later on a lot of her letters also talk about her visions well i also mean like is it possible that this is like a kind of power play within her community for her to gain prominence or does that not really match up with the evidence or how we understand her personality so i didn't see any discussion from scholars that hildegard wholesale invented these visions to gain her power so i think it would be reasonable to say that she does and we'll see this throughout her life Mm -hmm. she does lean on the visions and saying that she has heard the word of god to support the things that she wants in her life to be fair if i was a medieval woman and i had a vision from god i would like write that as hard as i could you don't get like much power as a medieval woman. yeah yeah yeah. i mean this is more like interesting as a way of discussing that very thing Mm, more than like screw hildegard or whatever (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and look, I would say I would be surprised if it wasn't a factor that Hildegard knew that through these visions she had gained power mm. that she would never have otherwise had as a woman. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, utilized that as she needed to. Yeah. But it does also seem from her writings that she genuinely believed in these visions. Okay. okay. So Sabina Flanagan, who's one of the biographers of Hildegard, kind of talks about the idea that the visions and believing she had the word of God behind her gave her the courage to stand up for things or do things that she otherwise wouldn't have had the courage mm-hmm. to do, which is, you know, a very non-cynical way of looking at it, I guess. So Hildegard was quite overwhelmed by this vision and this commandment, and she didn't immediately take up god's commandment to write down her visions and make them public she felt that she wasn't up for the task basically and she was also scared to talk about something that she'd been you know actively not talking about for most Mm -hmm. of her life until to quote her again weighed down by the scourge of god i fell into a bed of sickness so she sought advice from both volmar and abbot kuno who was the abbot of disabodenberg so the leader of that community and with their support, she began her first written work known as Scivias, which is a contraction of the Latin Scivias Domini, which means know the ways of the Lord. And once she started writing, she recovered from this illness. And as it's presented by her biographers, she was ill because she wasn't doing what God had asked her to. And once she started doing that, she got better. She continued working on Scivias for the next decade, and she completed that in 1151. And was her health good for this time? She's ill throughout her life. I don't think her health was consistently good, no. And we'll talk about another time in between those two years where she, again, didn't do what God had asked and again got sick until she did. But she's also just more generally ill in a way that she doesn't necessarily associate with whether she's following God's commandments or not. She's just sick a lot. Well, I'm glad that she doesn't always understand her illness as being her fault. She does refer to her illness more generally as being from God, but I don't think that's really in a moralizing way. That's just in the way that everything's from God when you're a 12th century nun. Yeah. Yeah. So in time, Pope Eugene III heard about Hildegard's visions and sent for a portion of her writing to read. So this was in about the mid-1140s. Imagine the Pope just standing for your writing to read. The Pope can have my fanfiction. There will come a time in the future, surely, where a Pope has been on AO3. I think that time will come, yeah. (laughs) Why do you think that? (laughs) Because <laughs> a lot of young people now have been on AO3, and one day those young people will be oh, aged I to be popes. What you mean. I see what you mean. I you thought you mean... meant like there will be a time soon where the Pope will have to wreck AO3. <laughs> I was like, for what possible reason? <laughs> so, Pope Eugene III read Hildegard's work. He liked it. He felt that it was in line with church teachings, and she wasn't saying anything too out there. And so he wrote to Hildegard to acknowledge her visions and give his approval for her to continue her work and writing them down. That's, like, not at all what I expected, honestly. That was, like, weirdly supportive for a pope. Yeah. Although there are people throughout her life who are disparaging of what she does, specifically, I think, because she's a woman and because she's not formally educated, there weren't really that many people who questioned at all the claim that she could see visions from God and was speaking God's words. Well, that's something. Yeah, good for her. Yeah. Is there any kind of gender distinction in who gets visions from God? Like, is it more men, more women? I don't know the, like, numbers of men and women throughout this time who had visions from God. I did read a little bit just, like, you know, looking at lists of saints from that era, and there are definitely more men, but I think that's just because there are more male saints because of misogyny. So the process to become a saint is very bureaucratic, and we can see how many petitions there were to make people saints versus how many became saints, and that's weighted towards men, like – 
mm-hmm. a lot of women where their community said, hey, this woman had visions, she did miracles and so on, were just turned down by the Pope. Uh. Women having visions were obviously also helped by the fact that there is biblical precedent for female prophets. Hildegard's compared by people who write to her or write about her at the time to the biblical prophet Deborah, to Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist, and to various other women throughout the Bible. So throughout her life, Hildegard would go on to write three major works about her visions. One is Givius, which I've mentioned. One is called Liber Vitae Meritorum, the Book of Life's Merits, which she wrote or she completed in 1163. They all take her quite a long time to write. And Uh one is Liber Divinorum Operum, the Book of Divine Works, which was completed in 1174. Latin seems all right. (laughs) (laughs) I think how you know, like, basic noun phrases is pretty solid. (laughs) Understands the genitive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think when the Pope read a work, he was like, look, the ideas are solid, but I'm just going to get the red pen out <laughs> Hildegard's visionary works mostly focus generally on advice on how to be a good Christian. They list various virtues and vices and the preventions and punishments and penances for those vices. I love how, like, organized and transactional this sounds, honestly. It's very organized. It's like, if you do this sin, this is what will happen to you in hell. This is what you can do in life to give penance for that sin so that doesn't happen. And these are some tips on not being tempted to that sin in the first place. And she basically goes through a lot of sins with that line of thinking. That's super practical. Do you think she just, like, asked around the convent and were like, so, you guys, what would you say you're, like, most tempted to do? I'm writing a self-help book. (laughs) It is a self-help book, yeah. I have, like, two things to say about this the first one is that this sounds like a quite like workable rpg (laughs) (laughs) i think the catholic man rpg would actually be great yeah (laughs) i think that could be fun that sounds fine and two is this information that she's compiling from other authorities or is she kind of like deciding i think to some to some degree she is deciding on this and Uh like it is noted that she is quite clear in kind of laying out what the punishment for a sin will be and why that links up to that sin. Like, okay. creating connections So they're, like, ironic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Okay, that's, that's fun, I guess. Yeah, she makes it quite logical in a way that not all of us at yeah. the time did. Is it, like, if you gossip, the devil's going to pull out your tongue every day forever kind of stuff? Yeah, that kind of thing. Right. If you're Fair mean enough. to retail workers, you will have to work in retail in, in hell. hell. <laughs> I think everyone's a retail worker in hell. <laughs> no, some people are in the call centre. And they just call the retail centre to confirm <laughs> their hours every five minutes or something. Okay. And offer to sell some light bulbs. This is so specific. <laughs> yeah, do people in other countries get spam calls specifically offering to replace your light bulbs? I feel like that's a common Australian one to businesses. We get it faxed to us even. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Hildegard's final visionary book, Liber Divinorum Operum, also explores a lot of ideas about cosmology and the structure of the universe and kind of how she sees that reflected in the structure of the human body. So it's kind of like the universe is a macrocosm of the human body or vice versa. That's like Um, a normal renaissance idea. Yeah. This is quite early for that, I think. I don't think it was like an outlandish idea that no one had had before, but yeah, it's an idea that she is quite interested in. And the other thing that Hildegard wrote in these books was some biblical commentaries, specifically on the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis. The Gospel of John is the weird one, right? The Gospel of John is the very esoteric one. It's not a narrative of Jesus' life in the same way the other Gospels are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what does she have to say about John and Genesis? 
I'm afraid I didn't read her okay. biblical commentaries. All right. I'm sorry that we're much more interested in the theology than you anticipated. Look, this could have been a whole theology episode. Yeah, obviously. But, you know, as we'll get to, it also could have been a whole medieval music episode because she wrote music. Yeah, or it could did. have been a whole medieval art episode because there's artworks that accompany her writings that she may not have done them, but she may have, like, explained to the person doing them what yeah. she wanted depicted and so on. Yeah, there's a lot of things she did. Yes, I see. <laughs> she also, which I just did not have any time for, made her own conlang. Cool. What the? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> How much do we know about Hildegard's language? Can we speak it? From what we can tell, it was mostly a substitution for Latin. Oh, like okay. she's coming okay. up with vocab and oh, using yeah. it within a Latin sentence structure. Would it be vocab that she knew in Latin? Or is it just like she's like, I don't have a big enough Latin vocab because I only <laughs> learned from this prayer. No, I think just it's inventing new Latin words. <laughs> no, I think it's vocab that she would have known. Okay. And she also invented a writing system to write it down. Oh, cool. Like yeah. with a different alphabet. Yeah. If the Anlister code was not niche enough for you, Newgate writing system just dropped. So, before we move on from talking about her theology and her visions, I do want to talk a little bit about a modern medical perspective on what was going on when Hildegard was having visions from God. So, the generally accepted explanation from both medieval historians and neurologists today is that Hildegard suffered from migraine. So about a third of people who have migraines experience what are called auras before or during the migraine, which can appear as bright lights. They can appear as like dark spots or dark parts on your vision. A lot of them are kind of in a like shape of crenellation and also just kind of shimmering on the vision and other visual hallucinations depending on the severity. So we've already mentioned from when she was three how Hildegard describes her vision as a bright light. And we see that throughout her life, that she often refers to her visions as coming from what she calls the living light, which is obviously how she refers to God, but also how she physically describes what she's seeing as a light. She also talks about seeing stars appearing and going out. She talks about shimmering images. She sees a lot of crenellated buildings. Okay. So all this aligns with what we would expect in like quite severe migraine auras. And migraine auras can also be accompanied by auditory hallucinations. And for some people, they're also accompanied by sudden feelings of familiarity and certainty. Oh. Yeah, I know that some people have, like, mood yeah, effects, like, like mood auras before their migraines. Yeah, and for some people that's, like, irritability and that kind of thing, but for some it's, like, you know, more calm certainty. What the... What? How do I get these? <laughs> I get migraines. I just feel like I'm going to vomit. I'd love to feel a sense of calm certainty at any point within the last two years. <laughs> So, as neurologist Oliver Sacks, who's written about Hildegard and the possibility of migraines, notes, quote, Even in the most sophisticated migraine patients, there's a tendency to objectivize the sensations of the aura. That is, to try and make sense of them in line with things that are actually happening in the world around them. So, obviously, in a setting such as 12th century Germany, where religion so pervaded Hildegard's life and seeing visions from God was quite normal, it makes sense that Hildegard, if she'd seen these things, could have understood them as being a vision. Like, good for Hildegard for getting something positive out of that, honestly. That's true. Yeah. I know that not everyone, like, that silent migraines exist and not everyone experiences pain when they have migraines, but I understand that migraines are normatively painful. Yeah. So did she talk about her visions being physically painful? I don't think she talks about the visions themselves being physically painful, but we do often see examples, as I mentioned, when, like, God told her to make her visions public, for example, of her being confined to bed after her visions. Okay. And having kind of a migraine hangover, I guess, afterwards. So it does seem that there's a connection between her being 
physically sick in some capacity and having a vision. Which I guess, again, makes sense in a medieval non-context where you're like, oh, I had a vision and now I have to recover from seeing the face of God. That's true, yeah. Like, that's a pretty intense thing to say. I don't think she ever sees the face of God. I think she generally describes it as like a blinding light that she can't really look at. Yeah, that's what I was assuming. Yeah. The face of God was. I didn't imagine it was like a literal human face up there in the yeah. heavens. Like even yeah. Moses only saw the back of God, so it'd be pretty like bold of him to be like, <laughs> "Yeah, he was just there. We're yeah, just hanging out, like a god." Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure that's not the only explanation we could come up with for Hildegard's visions, but I did find that quite a logical and convincing one, and I also found it useful from my perspective as a modern person to have a way of understanding what was happening so i wasn't just reading and coming but like what's going on though i don't get it what's a vision from god what are you seeing i'm generally pretty skeptical of and resistant to Mm. like modern attempts to provide medical diagnoses to people in the past i find that they're like and this may not be the case with hildegard but i find they're generally done either by like historical people with very shoddy medical knowledge or medical people with very shoddy historical knowledge. Yeah. And I feel like they're often, like, become a barrier for us to just trying to understand whatever phenomenon is going on from the point of view of the person who is experiencing them. Yeah. I I think sometimes that desire to kind of rationalise is counterproductive, but an understandable one. Yeah. I think I found, and obviously, you know, this will differ for other people, I found that not having a rational explanation holds me up and I'm kind of, every time I'm reading about the visions, there's a part of my mind going, but like, what's actually happening? And once someone's like, well, for example, this could have been a migraine, Mm. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly more believable than, like, some attempts to diagnose, you know, so-and-so with, like, paranoid schizophrenia yeah, 2,000 yeah. years ago and stuff like that that you see that get a bit, like, mm. Yeah, I think in this case, because we have, like, quite detailed descriptions of, yeah. from Hildegard of what she saw. Yeah. But, like, I do take your point. I think yeah. that often attempts to diagnose historical figures are done very badly. Yeah. And I think you're right that, like, especially if you're talking about more psychological diagnoses, like, schizophrenia or something which like the general public may not have a good understanding of a historian might just throw that kind of thing around they absolutely do yeah in 1148 hildegard had a vision that it was time to move her growing community of nuns from disibodenberg to a nearby site about 30 kilometers away called rupertsburg the move was an unpopular one with the monks at disibodenberg largely it seems because they feared they would lose the income that new nuns or their families contributed in dowries to the monastery when they joined the community so the community of nuns at Dissi-Boddenberg and the one that would be established at Rupertsburg was an aristocratic community. And so it was funded largely by the wealthy families of these women paying for them when they went into the monastery. And I will mention that like Hildegard always ran these convents as aristocratic convents and that was not unusual at the time, but she was also like challenged on that at the time. And people said to her, why do you only let aristocratic women in? That's not what God would have wanted. Well, that's well, a that's reasonable true. point. <laughs> yeah. And her response to that was that she felt that women from like a wide variety of different classes wouldn't be able to live harmoniously together in a convent because of their differing backgrounds. Yeah, not with that attitude, they weren't. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not classes, Tilda. Yeah, I thought that was worth mentioning, but, you know, yeah, there is a class was... divide here and Hildegard is perpetrating that. Yeah. yeah. So Abbot Kuno, who's in charge of Dissy Bottenberg, refused Hildegard's request to move her nuns. But God said. And so what's up with that? Yeah, so once again she fell ill and she was taken to bed until eventually Abbot Kuno was convinced by her illness that God genuinely wanted this and... She was allowed to move. See, like, that seems convenient. I don't mean that to be, like, catty or anything like that. Yeah. It just does seem a bit convenient. So, like, 
How do we feel about that? Throughout her life, Hildegard's visions do align with what Hildegard wants. Okay. Whatever we want to make of that, I think that is the situation. I mean, if we do assume that what she's having are like relatively abstract hallucinations, Mm, it's not surprising that she will interpret them in ways that are like relevant and meaningful to her. And they are quite abstract. Like there's one example where she says, you know, I saw a man, God or Jesus, I guess, sitting on a throne and the world at his feet. And then when you read the actual, like, description she gives of the vision rather than the interpretation, she says, I saw a bright light that was too bright to look at, which she understands as seeing God on his throne, and then a series of other lights below it, which she understands as the world at God's feet. Okay, yeah. So, really, there's a lot of room for interpretation, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Like, as I said before, it's less of me just trying to be, like, critical or cynical and more, I feel like if we understand her to be utilizing her vision strategically, that does doesn't just have to be like a critical bad perspective Mm. on her it gives her this agency like i guess you can view that as kind of manipulative if you want to take that perspective but also like in some ways it's like i don't want to say better because the historical truth just is what it is but i think that you could find it a more positive kind of experience for Mm. a woman to be like asserting agency over these visions even if she's making them up than just kind of like being like passively receptive to a bunch of sensory input that she has like no control over yeah sort of thing and hildegard throughout her life always presents it as being that she's fully just speaking the words of god and they're not her words and she doesn't really have any say in what she sees but at the same time a lot of what hildegard is able to do throughout her life so we'll talk about how she preaches publicly she writes she establishes her own comedy which was very unusual for a woman at the time, she's able to do because people understand her as a prophet. So it does give her a lot of power that she wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, And also just that, like, you can clearly see her interpreting, like, abstract input mm, as concrete messages. Yeah. One thing that one of the biographers I read noted was that as Hildegard goes on in life, her interpretations of her visions become more sophisticated and less reliant on this statement that this is what God just told me. Mm. Like in early visions, she'll kind of just say, I saw a bright light and God said these words and I understood this. And then later on, she's more talking about, I saw these things and I interpreted them in this way and this is what we should do. I guess as she gains more authority, she feels more comfortable like breaking it down that way Mm. as opposed to framing it in a way that can't be questioned. Yeah. So Hildegard got ill. Abbot Kuno decided at that point that he would allow her to establish her own convent because it was obviously what God wanted. And so she moved her nuns to the site at Rupertsburg and established a convent there. As Hildegard's fame as a prophet grew, so too did her community of nuns, expanding from about 20 women when it was founded to about 50 by the mid-1160s, and she also established a second convent nearby with about 30 nuns there. Nice. A franchise. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's a franchise because she's still in charge of both convents. Okay. So she would, like, visit this second one pretty regularly several times a week. Yes. I took your comment seriously. I'm sorry. (laughs) So despite their relocation, the nuns now at Rupertsburg maintained a connection with the monks at Dissi-Bodenberg. So Hildegard's friend Volmar, who we've mentioned, acted as their provost. So he would say mass for them. He'd hear confession for them. He also provided secretarial support to Hildegard. Wouldn't it be so convenient if women could simply say mass? Can women say mass now? Catholic women can't say mass, no. I see. (laughs) 
That was like a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, <Yes. literally. laughs> So the monks also, as well as providing Volmar as the provost, continued to exercise financial control over the nuns. So they continued to accept the dowries of the women who entered the convent. So Hildegard spent many years trying to fight for control of this money. In 1155, so this is seven years after her first vision that said they should move, she was still trying to wrest control of these dowries from Abbot Kuno. He was very ill by this time. She visited him on his deathbed to accuse him of being, quote, the worst of robbers. Oh my god. Hilda! <laughs> Just let the man die. <laughs> Abbot Kuno did die that year. And Hildegard eventually struck up an agreement with his successor, Abbot Hallengar, that the monks would retain any existing finances that had come in through nuns' dowries, but future dowries would go to the nuns directly. I okay. could have just organised that, Hilda, without accosting a man on his deathbed. <laughs> her and Abbot Kuno, I think, just did not have a good relationship. Yeah. And her and Abbot Hellinger and kind of the monks at Dissy Burdenburg in general don't seem to have had a very good relationship, and I think this fight over money is probably the source mm. of that. So Hellinger later wrote to Hildegard many years later to ask her if she'd had any visionary revelations about St. Disibod, who's the founder of Dissy Boddenberg. Oh, this is going to be sick burn. She responded, sometimes you're like a bear which growls under its breath, but sometimes like an ass, not prudent in your duties. Indeed, in some matters, you are altogether useless. Ouch. <laughs> so she's just savage to these men. Yeah. All right. And she also, in that letter, sent them a written copy of a sermon that she'd already preached to them about the dangerous state of their souls. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, so uh, I had any visions lately? And she was like, you will literally go to hell. <laughs> All right. So doesn't she have like a friend though? Who is the monk then? Volmar, Volmar is her friend. Yeah. So Volmar so, moves to the convent um, with them. Right. With her and the is nuns. he like the only monk then? Yeah. Okay. He's the, so he's the one who says mass for them. Is that like okay? Yeah, yeah. So that's acceptable. <laughs> Obviously, somebody always had to say mass for nuns. And nuns have to go to mass like every day. And nuns have to go to mass. Oh, okay. So okay. it was quite acceptable for there to be a man who kind of played that role as a spiritual advisor right. and also a confessor because you have to confess to a priest, which oh, has to be a okay. man. Oh, okay. So there was a necessity mm-hmm. for a man to interact with nuns. I see. That seems quite fraught. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so he's all right. Like he's not a stupid donkey bear man. Like he <laughs> no, I don't. According have to Hildegard, anything bad to say about Volmar? Right. He seems like a good guy. She cool. writes very positively throughout her life about what a good friend he is and how supportive he was of her and the work she was doing. Nice. She's very upset when he eventually dies. Seems like a good relationship. Right. They're good oh, friends. That's pleasant. Yeah. And we see, like, for example, that she confides in him and goes to him when she has problems. Like, you know, when she first has her vision that says, you've got to write down your vision, she goes to him to be like, what do I do? And he's like, damn, write down the visions, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder what he thought about her writing all of this, like, snarky stuff to his, like. Yeah, that is his boss. <laughs> yeah. I feel like interpersonal relationships in, like, convents and monasteries must have been such a minefield. Oh, Oh, absolutely. It's just like any workplace except you're locked in. And you're being locked in at your work forever. No, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Just getting facts after facts about the light bulb. So, one of the nuns at Rupertsburg was a woman named Richardus. In her autobiography, Hildegard writes about Richardus, saying, I held a certain noble girl in great affection. She allied herself to me in diligent friendship in everything and consoled me in all my trials. So they're very close. And she specifically talked about Richardus's assistance when she was writing Scythius, and some scholars have speculated that Richardus might have acted as a scribe for Hildegard's work. So in 1151, Richardus was invited by her brother, Archbishop Hartwig of Bremen, which is in northern Germany, 
to take up a position as abbess of the convent of Basel, which is in Bremen in northern Germany. And Hildegard and Richard's close relationship is very apparent from the series of letters that follows this decision, and we see Hildegard's very emotional attachment to Richardus. So first, when she found out about this decision, Hildegard wrote to Richardus's mother, who is, you know, an aristocratic woman and wields quite a lot of power. She helped Hildegard, for example, buy the land at Rupertsburg when they moved there. So she wrote to this woman. The reason I'm saying this woman and not her name is because her name is also Richardus. Uh, <laughs> how do you spell Richardus? Richard I-S. Oh, okay. Maybe it's Richardus if they're in Germany. So she wrote to Richardus' mother and she said, I beg and warn you not to disturb my soul and draw bitter tears from my eyes and fill my heart with harsh wounds on account of my dearest daughters, Richardus and Adelheid. So Adelheid is Richardus's niece, who had also received a prestigious abbess appointment in northern Germany. She is mentioned in this letter, but overall this series of letters is very much focused on Hildegard's connection to Richardus. So what's interesting about this letter to Richardus's mum, as compared with most of Hildegard's other writing, is that it's in her own voice and doesn't reference any vision to back up her writing. She's very much just talking about how emotionally she won't cope without Richardus. Okay. So Hildegard's next letter in this series is to Archbishop Henry of Mainz, who oversaw Rupertsburg, so that's within his diocese. He had written to Hildegard demanding she send Richardus to Basel. Give me the nun. <laughs> this time she makes it clear in her reply that she is speaking with God's voice, opening, The bright fountain, truth and just, says, before she goes on to condemn Richardus' election as abbess as the product of church corruption rather than a genuine expression of God's will. That's kind of mean to Richardus, honestly, who may have been a perfectly good abbess. She may have been a perfectly good abbess, it's true, yeah. And you know, probably there is an element of church corruption at work here. Like, Adelheid, who I mentioned, was very, very young. She may not have even been an adult or, you know, officially a nun yet. And yet she was elected as the abbess of this other prestigious convent in northern Germany. She was Richardus' niece, so I guess it's by her uncle, who is the archbishop. Okay. So, you know, there is definitely an element of nepotism at work. Yeah. Okay. I suppose we don't really have any idea if Richardus wanted to go or not. No, I don't think we do have much from Richardus, unfortunately. We don't have any letters from Richardus. Mm. It certainly is kind of telling that she pulls out the vision from God when she writes to the archbishop, but if she's just <laughs> writing to a lay person, she's just like, no, it would break my heart. I was thinking about this when we were kind of talking before mm. about, you know, how consciously does she use her visions from God for her personal needs and I think this is a really good example to analyze that like she writes to Richardus's mum very personally yeah and when that doesn't work she writes to the archbishop and says this is what god wants and what god wants is conveniently what she what wants. I yeah. want because of my personal emotions yeah so I wonder what would happen if the archbishop was like well I had a vision from god <laughs> yeah. actually mum says it's my turn on the ps2 <laughs> No, surprisingly, I didn't come across any examples of that. Which, like, you think you would. You know, visions weren't that unusual at the time. Yeah. yeah. It must have happened at least, like, once. It must have happened. And, you know, I didn't get into all the theological debate and related political conflict that was going on at the time, just because we didn't have time for that. It's yep. quite complex. So I'm sure that was going on. So Hildegard concludes her letter to Archbishop Henry by saying, Your malicious curses and threatening words are not to be obeyed. You have raised up your rods of punishment arrogantly, not to serve God, but to gratify your own perverted will. This is so vicious. Yeah, pretty full-on letters. Can she just like get away with saying this stuff? Yeah, she does. Surprisingly, oh, she does. And I think, once again, it's because she's saying God said this. She's like, I didn't say that. That wasn't me. I'm just telling you what God said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like genuinely quite surprised that no one calls into question her visions about this point. Well, 
You have to remember that she did get approval from the Pope quite early on. Yeah, that's true. That's so that's true. a factor. So if people mm. keep saying no to her, eventually she will write to the Pope and be like, people aren't listening to my visions. So next, she wrote to the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <I see. laughs> yep. And the Pope basically said, look, this isn't my concern. This is a decision for the archbishops. That was very professional of him. Good <laughs> <Yeah>. job. <laughs> and finally, she wrote to Richardus's brother who had organized her election or informed them of her election as abbess. And again, without success. So Richardus did leave Rupertsburg for Bussum. The only letter we have between Hildegard and Richardus comes from this time. And by the time she wrote this letter, it seems that Hildegard has changed her tune and come to accept Richardus' leaving as God's plan. So she now describes it as a lesson aimed at showing her the folly and vanity of her earthly attachments, that is particularly her attachment to Richardus, and a reminder for her to place her focus on God. At the same time, she's clearly very emotional in this letter. She asks Richardus, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus asks God on the cross. So that's oh, pretty full on. <laughs> and, you know, she asks it to Richardus, but Hildegard is sort of saying that she sees this lesson from God, and that's a thing that was asked to God. So I think you can also interpret this as, why yeah. has God done this to me? Yeah. And I think this letter is the only example I came across where it's pretty clear that what Hildegard wants doesn't align with what she now sees God as wanting. Like, I think the general Catholic vibe is that whatever happens is part of God's plan. So given that it's happened, she kind of is obligated to reconcile herself with the fact that this is God's plan. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's happening is she was really against it and she saw it as not being what God wanted. And then it happened and she kind of had to go, oh, okay, so I guess this is what God wanted. What's going on? Why did God want this? And Mm -hmm. she explains that God wanted this because I was too attached to Richardus and God felt that was drawing my attention away from him. Fair enough. Like, that's, I guess, internally consistent enough to be getting on with. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, Richardus passed away the following year. Oh, what? But where's the gay bit, though? How old was Richardus? She was quite a bit younger than Hildegard, okay. and this was in the 1150s, so she's probably in her 30s. Okay, oh, that's sad. Don't know what she died of, but I think it was, you know, she yeah, just got sick and died, as people did yeah. in medieval times pretty regularly. Well, that's a shame. Richardus' brother, Archbishop Hartwig, wrote to inform Hildegard, and he wrote in his letter that one of Richardus's last acts had been that, quote, she tearfully expressed her longing for your cloister with her whole heart, and if death had not prevented, she would have come to you as soon as she was able to get permission. Oh, that's like, I guess, nice to tell her, but also like in some ways quite cruel to tell Hildegard. Yeah. Because it could never happen. But, you know, I guess there's no nice way to tell Hildegard. Yeah, obviously. But like, that's just rough. So I'm going to be upfront with you. This is the queerest relationship we know of in Hildegard's life. Okay. okay. So this is where the gay stuff is. Do we know anything more about it? I do have a few more quotes that Hildegard wrote about it that I think give us some insight into it. So I'll tell you what we do know about it and then we can... Okay. Make your case. Have our gay thoughts. Irene and I are here to judge. (laughs) (laughs) We are the panel. So in Hildegard's own words, her love for Richardus did go beyond the expectations of the time. In her letter to Richardus, she writes... I love the nobility of your behavior, the wisdom and purity of your soul, and your entire being, so much that many said, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, right. (laughs) Sorry, that's just very, like, monotonic at the end of that. It was very much like, thou art noble of countenance, I say, thine are a hottie. (laughs) (laughs) So one difficulty with interpreting how queer that statement is, is that any romantic or sexual attachment would have been inappropriate for Hildegard, regardless of the gender 
of her partner or the person she was interested in because she's a nun. And, you know, nuns are obviously not meant to get married or have romance with anyone. And also, like, Hildegard herself talks about how she's not meant to have worldly attachments. She's not meant to feel too strongly about the world because she's meant to be focusing on God. Yeah. But the fact of that being true, like, the fact of any, like, romantic relationship her having being inappropriate because she's a nun does not change the fact that Ricardus is a woman. Like, that's still queer, even if it would have been questionable if Ricardus had been a man too. Yeah, I guess the question is, is it what are you doing feeling this way about a woman or what are you doing having such a strong earthly relationship when you're meant to focus on God? Yeah, I guess the kind of question there is like, what is the character of this relationship specifically and why is it questionable? And how do we go about defining a like romantic sentiment in this context? Yeah. yeah. And I guess the question that I was getting at is if Hildegard and Richardus had not been nuns, if they'd just been two women living in the German countryside in the 1200s, would people have still said, what are you doing about their relationship? Or would it have just been two women who are friends? And the what are you doing is because they're nuns, not because they're two women who are closer than women are meant to be. I don't know yeah. if that will necessarily answer the question of whether that's interesting to us as mm. like modern queer people, because it's entirely possible that I don't know anything about like German medieval social norms, but it's entirely possible that a relationship which reads as queer to us would not have raised questions between two German women in the countryside. And That's the true. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I do think that even if this would have been to some degree normative to these two hypothetical, you know, <laughs> rolling German peasant, peasant women. women. I'm not sure if that's the most productive way to then define relationships specifically between nuns as queer or not. Mm. Like, yeah. you know, the nunnery is still a social context that exists with its own norms and so forth. Yeah. Um, and I think we're kind of butting up against that difficulty of like, when do we define a relationship as quote unquote queer when yeah. it's like, seems kind of gay in a modern way in terms of being like romantic and or sexual or when it goes outside the norms of whatever community it existed in yeah like i don't think that that's an easy question to answer like by that second definition we could say that hildegard being interested in a man would also have been a queer relationship which i just don't like care to do <laughs> yeah. wearing the thinking. convent by being straight yeah like it's certainly kind of a way that people use like, I'm not saying people specifically say nuns being into men is queer or anything yeah. like that, but, like, that kind of logic certainly does appear in queer studies, and I find it tiresome, personally. Yeah, uh, no, I feel the same. When people use queer to kind of just represent outside the norms of a society, yeah. and it can become detached from discussions about, like, even your gender or your sexuality. Yeah. Or anything, like, that was kind of weird. That's queer. No, I agree. I wish that academics would learn a way of saying, like, this was kind of subversive. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know if we can, I guess, to use our language, then differentiate between this being more generally subversive and somehow queer. But mm. I think that it being specifically within this context should still be relevant. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So Hildegard's letter to Hartwig after Richard's death continues on this kind of theme of focusing on God over worldly attachments. So she writes that, Although the world loved Richardus's physical beauty and her worldly wisdom, oh, okay. God loved her beautiful. more. She was physically beautiful. <laughs> Hadn't mentioned that before. She was a hottie. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes on to say, therefore, God was unwilling to give his beloved to a rival lover, that is, to the world. So while she depicts Richardus as two rival lovers here as just God and the world, having read her previous comments about her own worldly attachment to Richardus, which she feels, you know, was quite 
a big factor in this whole situation. I think this can definitely also be read as a more personal comment about Hildegard herself as one of Richardus' rival lovers. I don't know. Like, I'm not saying that is definitely what she's Mm. saying, but I'm saying that's a possible reading. Yeah, I suppose so. I'm aware that in some religious contexts, this kind of language of that marriage and so forth to talk about God is quite normal. Yeah. No, it's definitely quite normal to talk about nuns has kind of married to God at this time in this context. Given in that context, that's quite difficult to analyze because, yeah, I think it makes that reading that you've given Mm. potentially viable but also quite complicated. Yeah. And then you get, like, Hildegard has used the same kind of language about herself and God when she wrote to Ricardus and was like, I guess it was a lesson from God that I was too close to you and was turning my attention away from God. Mm, yeah. Um, it's the same kind of language where God is the jealous lover, I guess. Yeah. So I think it's hard to read anything specific into that. I also think, like, there's a general kind of cliche of, like, too good for this world. Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely a cliche that is pretty prevalent in these conversations about Richardus. Like, she was too good for this world, she had to go back to God, basically. Yeah, so I think you can kind of read it in that context, where it's like, God can have her, or the world can have her, and because she was so wise and so beautiful, there's only one obvious answer. Yeah. That provides for the context, but doesn't really allow us to resolve the question of if this is queer or not still. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think we're going to resolve the question. No, like, obviously not, but, I mean, if we're not going to give it a go, like, what's the podcast (laughs) for? Yeah. <laughs> this was definitely one of those episodes where I researched and I was like, ooh, was this queer? Oh, I've done all the work now, so we're going to give it a shot. <laughs> we haven't actually had one of those in quite a while, so this is fun. It's like, oh, yeah, like, what do we say about this stuff again? Yeah, we don't just say, ah, oh, we don't know, and then go home. I mean, I think we do. We just do it in a really lengthy way that wastes a lot of people's time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes, like, when we've had this before, like, there are some situations where you're like, oh, I can't tell whether this individual relationship is queer, but it does give us a lens to look at this society Mm. through or something Mm. like that. And I'm not sure what this gives us yet. I guess it does give us some lens of what issues queer women in a convent might have come up against. Like, even though you're in an all-female situation and, you know, all your relationships are going to be with women, there's still this thing that if you're too close to one of these women, you're turning away from God. Yeah. That feels more like we're getting somewhere with, with like, how queerness is viewed in a convent. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, we probably need to just talk about, like, a lot of other potentially queer nuns to really build up a portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) I had a thought while you were talking about that. And I was thinking about the other relationships we see Hildegard have with women throughout her Uh life. We don't know that much about her relationship with the nuns within her convent. Okay. Because a lot of our sources are letters. And you don't write letters to the women you live with, because why would you do that? But she does have a correspondence with a woman named Elizabeth of Chernow. Elizabeth of Chernow is a woman younger than Hildegard. I don't know exactly how old, who also has visions. Oh, cool. And so Hildegard kind of plays a mentoring role to her. And she writes to Hildegard, like, what should I do about my visions? And Hildegard gives her advice and so on. And, like, this is very explicitly like a motherly relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, Hildegard refers to herself as Elizabeth's mother. And when Elizabeth thinks about following these kind of paths that were popular at the time of being really ascetic and, you know, fasting or wearing hair shirts or I can't remember what exactly it is, but those kind of activities, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hildegard steps in this space like, I'm your mom and I don't think that's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm Thanks, glad. Laura. I'm glad. Because seems like reasonable advice. Yeah, Hildegard was very in favour of moderation in terms of that kind of thing. But yeah. 
was, you know, Christians were engaging at the time. The point I was making was that Hildegard was very close with Elizabeth from their letters. She saw herself as Elizabeth's mum, and they have quite a strong relationship. And Elizabeth's not the only example of women with whom Hildegard had that relationship. Mm-hmm. And we don't have any comments about any of those relationships being too worldly okay. or okay. not appropriate. So with Richardus thinking about that kind of mother-daughter dynamic, quite a few scholars have characterized Hildegard and Richardus' relationship in that way, uh-huh. but it's quite apparent from the letters we have that that is but, not that yeah. simple. So Hildegard refers to their relationship as being like the relationship between St. Paul and St. Timothy, which is a mentoring relationship. Okay. St. Paul mentors St. Timothy, and that's recognized in the church as, you know, kind of the ideal mentoring relationship. So Hildegard talks about that, but at the same time, in her letters to Richardus and her letters to Hartwig about Richardus, she alternates between calling Richardus her mother and her daughter, and she quite consciously does that alternation. So she'll do it in one sentence, like when she writes to Richardus saying, why have you left me? She writes, woe is me, mother, woe is me, daughter. Uh, yeah, no, okay, this is queer, never mind. Yeah, and she yeah. writes to Hartwig, like, I saw Richardus as my mother and my daughter because of the divine yeah. love I had for her. Yeah, okay, uh, no, okay, this is queer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I held this card for so Why long. did you? <laughs> yeah. No, like that Alice really... is like, with well, a dubious Trump card. <laughs> Trump card, mother-daughter. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, that to me really speaks to her trying to articulate a relationship that she does not have the language to articulate within mm. her social setting. Yeah, that yeah. It is extremely close and is with another woman. And I think that, like, that's perfectly reasonable to understand as falling within queerness at that yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, like, she has the language of a mother-daughter relationship, but in that language, one of you has to be the mother and one has to be the daughter, and she yeah. doesn't see her relationship as being in that dichotomy. Mm. I kind of struggled to actually find scholarship that really engaged with the idea of Hildegard being queer. I found a fair bit that talked about queerness in that way we mentioned where it's just kind of subversive, like discussions of women's sexuality, close relationships between women, acknowledging, as we'll talk about a bit later on, acknowledging that women, you know, have a sexuality and feel sexual desire. But I just didn't find anything that really wanted to go in and be like, so was Hildegard gay or what? Yeah. (laughs) So I guess, like, it's interesting to me that are they saying that stuff and not really actually explicitly connecting it to anything that actually happened at all? Or is there an implication that Hildegard must have been sexually interested in Richardus, but they're not willing to kind of commit to it? I guess the second one. So I wrote down a couple of quotes from Barbara Newman, who is one of the scholars who I read about Hildegard. Okay. And she, for example, describes Hildegard's letter to Richardus after Richardus has left as, quote, voicing all the passion of a bereft lover. And then she talks about their relationship as a chaste but troubled, intensely erotic bond. Okay. But she dwells on this for one paragraph, which is mostly just a factual paragraph with these sentences chucked in there in the yeah. work I read. And she doesn't really go in any deeper to really talk about what the relationship might have been or what it might have looked like. Or mm. well, like where she's finding the eroticism in that. Yeah, yeah, like she calls it erotic, but like she doesn't really unpack why. I feel like this does happen sometimes where people struggle to conceptualize queerness as about anything other than sex. Mm. So, like, if they're like, I'm picking up that there's something queer on the radar, they immediately kind of go towards talking about that in sexual terms. Yeah. Without really examining if that is warranted, which I feel is potentially what's happening there. Yeah. So I did want to make one comment about Hildegard's sexuality, the only snippet of information that I have found. Well, let's milk this for all it's worth. (laughs) Let's go, let's go. So Hildegard wrote a letter to another convent talking about how women ought to focus not on men but on God. 
Okay. Pretty standard stuff. And by God, I mean Richardus. <laughs> <laughs> and that a woman who, quote, refuses a carnal husband for love of God, looks to God and not to another man whom previously she did not wish to have. So the thing I found interesting about this quote is obviously that she assumes this hypothetical woman she's talking about who's becoming a nun does not wish to have a carnal husband. Yeah. It's not that she's got these options she's interested in, marrying and sleeping with a man or becoming a nun. It's that sleeping with a man does not interest this hypothetical yeah. woman. And the fact that Hildegard just makes this assumption about a hypothetical woman becoming a nun says to me that Hildegard was not interested in sleeping with men. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. kind of rings the same as when people try and come out to their mums about being ace and their mums are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, no one wants to have sex. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. That does have yeah big lesbian or asexual energy. Yeah, yeah, of some sort. It's also, I guess, it's very hard to kind of analyze that much in the lesbian direction because she's so clearly talking about carnal relationships with a man, not like carnal desires in general. Yeah, yeah. It's very explicitly about normative heterosexual sex. So you know how none of us want to have sex with our husbands anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And so I guess it's hard to take from that whether Hildegard thinks that there are like desirable physical intimacies between women. Yeah. Mm. That she's just not talking about here because she's talking about getting married. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess like as well, even if she did potentially feel sexual desire towards women, obviously she would have had a pretty complicated relationship Mm. with that given Mm. the religious tradition she exists within. So Yeah. And she like in her writing she is actively condemnatory of homosexuality, both between men and between women. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, that so. also seems like something you should have brought up. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just said a lot of stuff and I don't want to interrupt you, so I just wait till you, you know, talk yourself out and then I drop the next piece of information. <laughs> I right. see, okay. Right, so this go. is awful. That's the next one. I need like, to. Drip feeders that you put in your, like, hamster <laughs> cage. Yeah. <laughs> she writes of male homosexuality that it, quote, sins bitterly against the conjunction by which God joined man and woman. Okay. And of female homosexuality that a woman who simulates intercourse, taking the part of a man with another woman, appears most vile in my sight. Since such people have transformed themselves into a different mode, they are contemptible to God. Okay. All right, that was fairly clear cut. So, yeah, but again, I don't feel like that actually really fundamentally changes anything because she could still be, you know, sexually interested in women but have extreme mm. internalized hatred about that. Or she could be an asexual woman for whom sex was just a confusing thing. You yeah. Know, it was confusing that anyone would want to do that anyway, and that's how she's vocalizing that. Yeah. Um, and these opinions were very much the teachings of the church and the norms of the time. So it's yeah. not like Hildegard in her own head just came up with this type of home. Yeah. yeah. This is what she would have been taught. And I guess there's also a like specific thing there in that she's like quite detailed about what she's talking about. She's like, you're simulating intercourse with another woman. Yeah. And you wonder like more broadly, what kinds of like intimacy between women does she find acceptable and unacceptable? Like we know that she has ruled out penetration. Yeah, and this is very much in the context of the idea that specific genders are meant to perform specific roles in sex and that that's complementary. And she talks more generally a lot about, like, the way that women's bodies are designed for reproduction and, you know. Basically the idea that what is meant to happen is a man penetrates a woman and she gets pregnant and has a baby and that's what God wants and that's how our bodies are built. This feels like something that the church is going to have a very clear position on, but, like, how does she come to terms with the fact that 
women's bodies the way she sees it are so strongly designed for something that she is devoting herself to God by actively not doing. That's a very good point. And she even talks about in her medical writings, which we'll mention in a sec. Wait, she did medical writings? <laughs> oh yeah, she did medical writings. <laughs> I told you she was a poet. Oh, yeah, you did too. In her medical writings, she specifically talks about how for most people, sex is a necessary part of health like you need to have sex to be healthy oh, sex is good for you basically oh what <laughs> i i don't know my impression which absolutely is just like an impression of someone who's never been involved even in christianity let alone scholarly in christianity is that the general perception of most christian denominations is that just sex is evil like this is definitely what i heard from christians that i knew that they had to kind of overcome this idea that like yeah look technically if you're in a heterosexual marriage you can have sex but try not to enjoy it yeah yeah Um, and look i don't know the exact history of christian understanding of sex yeah but hildegard's medical texts are very much based as medicine was at the time on classical texts Oh, okay. And classical understandings of sex and gender and those kind of writings. And in those texts, we do see the kind of comments that it's healthy for women to have sex, basically. To go back to your question, Irene, about, well, how does she justify the fact that she kind of, she doesn't explicitly say, but it seems to us that she said she's not interested in sex with men Mm. and that she lives a life pretty focused around not having sex. Yeah, as does every (laughs) nun, right? As does every nun. So one thing that I wanted to mention was that conflict and that idea that nuns weren't performing a normal female gender role was acknowledged at the time. Uh So to go back to Yuta, who Mm -hmm. you'll remember from when she entered the convent with Hildegard, she entered a religious life against her family's wishes and she rejected several offers of marriage before she did. And the word that her biographer, who was presumably one of the monks at Dissy Bordenberg, uses to describe her rejecting these offers of marriage is virilite, which translates as manfully. Oh, (laughs) okay. So it's apparent that the idea that a woman would not get married and go into the church was seen as her rejecting some aspects of femininity, I guess, mm-hmm. from that quote. Yeah. Like, I feel like the church must just, like, have some things to say about this and have some positions on this, given that they're so committed to celibacy among church leaders. Yeah. I mean, I guess another thing to consider is that all these practices of self-denial were a big part of Catholicism and particularly, like, monastic or convent life yeah. at the time, like, we talked about fasting and mm. various self-flagellation and self-harm kind of practices and, you know, going without clothes when it's cold and sleeping on a hard floor in a cell. Like, all these things were church practices at the time that they saw as bringing you closer to God by kind of denying these worldly comforts. Okay, so it kind of makes sense in that context that even though it's healthy for people to have sex, you're denying yourself this pleasure because it will remove you from the world and bring you closer to God. Yeah, and like I haven't got that explicitly written down from church teachings at the time, but that's kind of my understanding of what's happening. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And obviously that's on a broader level, on a perspective from Hildegard, who may not be interested in sex with men, I guess it's just a nice bonus that if she goes into a convent, that's off the table. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about in terms of queerness and specifically queerness in convents is Hildegard's musical compositions. Okay. So she wrote over 70 liturgical songs, which come down to us, which is more than we have from almost any other 12th century European composer, which is cool. And I particularly wanted to talk about scholar Bruce Wood Holsinger's queer reading of her song Ave Generosa. All right, let's go. So this is a bit of the, you know, scholars throwing around the word queer. Uh But, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting. I wanted to talk about it. 
Okay. So Holstein calls Ave Generosa, which translates as Hail Noble Girl, an expression of intense, loving, and erotic devotion to the Virgin Mary. Are you allowed to feel erotic but, about the Virgin Mary? Um, I don't know. Okay. I would say no. Or is it that you can, but she's just not going to, you know, do anything with you? So. I mean, I guess she's not going to do anything with you. She's both dead and, you know, very notably a virgin. So before we talk about this hymn, Ave Generosa, I'm just going to play you a snippet of it for no reason except that I feel like it's kind of weird to talk about a song without having heard it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. So you don't have to have any analytical thoughts. I just want you to hear it. Just simply buy them. enjoyed vibing to that music. Okay. So in Ave Generosa, Hildegard writes about Mary's experience of the conception of Jesus. She says, Your womb held joy with all the celestial symphony sounding from you. Your flesh held joy, just as grass on which dew falls when greenness is poured into it. Holsinger argues that in expressing joy and particularly like her flesh feeling joy, like physical joy in the conception of Jesus, Hildegard is depicting this as an erotic experience. I think it's reasonable to depict conception as an erotic experience. Yeah, it makes sense. So in the closing verse of this song, Hildegard says, Now let all the church blush in joy for the sweetest virgin and praiseworthy Mary. The word Hildegard uses for the church is ecclesia, which is a feminine noun in Latin. And also, more specifically, Hildegard, throughout her other works, actively depicts ecclesia as a woman. So ecclesia is not just the church, but the female personification of the church. That is quite normal, though. That's not just a Hildegard thing. Yeah, no, that's quite normal. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. It's a common visual depiction in old churches, cathedrals or whatever. I know about this because they also make up Synagoga, who is blindfolded with broken scales. Oh, yeah, they do do that. I'm sorry about that. So Holsinger argues that in linking two female figures, Mary and the feminine embodiment of the church, in a song about the sensual, joyful experience of conception, Hildegard is creating an erotic female-female queer scenario. I feel like Holsinger has made a mistake here where they have kind of combined like clearly mary is having physical joy about being impregnated by god yeah ecclesia is just a spectator yeah. so ecclesia is not having this erotic act and i feel like holsinger has kind of obscured that that's fair the line about ecclesia is let all the church blush in joy as this occurs for what it's worth so you know obviously a spectator who is also experiencing pleasure from this act Okay. Or joy from this act. Okay. I think it's fair to read that as a, you know, woman, woman, erotic okay. experience. If you've kind of already established that that is something that Hildegard would be interested in exploring. So yeah. it becomes this kind of circular question. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I don't think we can read that and be like, oh yeah, for sure. Hildegard was thinking about women having sex when she wrote this song about the Virgin Mary. Like, I think that would be an extreme leap of logic. Yeah. Yeah. Holsinger also sees the queerness of this song as compounded by the fact that it was written specifically by Hildegard to be sung by a group of women in an all-female setting. So there was a movement at the time for church music to become quite conservative in terms of its range and its, like, use of, you know, singing one word across many notes and that kind of thing. And Hildegard is very extreme for that time in her range and the way that she sings in a way that would have sounded very kind of, like, extreme and joyful to the people listening to it, whereas music was moving towards being conservative. 
Okay. So he talks about this idea of, you know, this all-female group singing this really extremely, almost inappropriately joyful song about this physical pleasure that a woman is feeling. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, like, a fair point, I guess. And I guess it does kind of float in that area where it's like, are we saying that women's sexual pleasure is queer? Mm, Yeah, and I was definitely thinking about that as I read a few things about this, and we'll talk some more about how Hildegard writes about women's sexual pleasure in her medical texts, and people kind of go, she's queer because she described women feeling pleasure during sex. And it's like, well, that's not queer. Mm, Yeah. That is, like, significant. And subversive and important. But it's not queer in the sense that we use it when we title this queer as fact. Yeah, Yeah. no. Unless we we talk about women reading the sealed section of Girlfriend magazine as a queer experience. (laughs) You could get an academic article at that. Uh. (laughs) Let's talk about Hildegard's descriptions of female pleasure so you can discuss what's Uh, important. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's Um, unrip that sealed section. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, Hildegard wrote some scientific medical kind of works she wrote two ones called physica or natural history which is basically an encyclopedia of all different plants and animals and metals and rocks and stuff and what their medical uses are i would love to write that kind of book where you just list stuff that exists and describe it <laughs> yeah that, that was a popular book back in the day yeah. <laughs> the stuff's all kind of been listed now. yeah exactly <laughs> and her other medical work is called causae et curae Causes and Cures, which, as the name suggests, lists various illnesses and their causes and their cures. It's really giving me the impression that, like, Latin's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I will mention that, as with much of her work, this was largely unprecedented stuff for a woman to be writing. We know of only one other female European medieval medical writer. Cool. So... There's a lot we could say about Hildegard's medical work. That could be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah. But basically I wanted to talk about what she writes about women's sexuality. In particular, she writes about women as having sexual desire, and she provides us with what some scholars have interpreted as a description of the female orgasm. Juicy. (laughs) So she says, When a woman is making love with a man, a sense of heat in her brain, which brings with it sensual delight, summons forth the emission of the man's seed. And when the seed has fallen into its place, that vehement heat descending from her brain draws the seed into itself and holds it, and soon the woman's sexual organs contract, and all the parts that are ready to open up during the time of menstruation now close. I'm ready to believe that that's a description of a woman's orgasm. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds plausible. Uh, It also sounds simultaneously nothing to do with how sex is and how (laughs) bodies are at all, and also like someone who has prematurely had an orgasm. One thing that was noted when reading about her medical works is that she doesn't, as a lot of people did at the time, just kind of copy and compile from other texts. She Mm. does write her stuff herself. I want to not only be just like listing rocks in your hometown, but also (laughs) be able to just freely plagiarize off of like... (laughs) Rocks from the next town. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This quote about possibly about the female orgasm came up a lot in discussion of the fact that Hildegard is queer or maybe queer. And I don't think it's inherently queer to talk about women having orgasms when sleeping with men. No. (laughs) I don't think that's controversial. (laughs) No. Like, I think that's interesting, but I don't think it fundamentally changes anything. Yeah. Like, she could yeah. still be a lesbian. She could still be asexual. She could, you know, yeah. she could have literally just gone and asked some woman, like, hey, so you know when you have sex with your husband? And she's like, uh, yes. <laughs> what like, happens? I'm a nun. This is for God, I promise. <laughs> 
She does. Like, even her medical work she depicts as coming from God, like visions from God. And she talks about, more generally, about knowledge and learning. Like, she really doesn't depict it as being something you learn in the world. She depicts it as something that if you want to know something, you will just learn it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's such a bold move. God sent me an orgasm so I can write this book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, like, taught me how to do calculus. Isn't that what happened to Isaac Newton? Is it? (laughs) He just figured it out himself. I guess we'll do that episode sometime. We'll find the film. <laughs> <laughs> you just told me that Isaac Newton got math from God and was gay, effectively, and I don't know if either of that was true. I think he, like, speculatively aced yeah, okay. I think there is some discussion about that that I haven't looked into. Did he get yeah. math from God? I think he was quite religious okay. from memory. That's why I said that. But I don't think he was straight up having visions from God. Like, I understand <laughs> that he worked on calculus for some time. That was not a historical statement that I made. <laughs> Can you make some historical statements now? Okay, so I'm going to move on from sexuality for a bit. Okay, cool. So with the acknowledgement of her visions by the Pope in 1147 and the completion of Scivias in 1151, Hildegard grew in fame as a prophet, and in the late 1150s she began to go on preaching tours around Germany. Good her. her preaching was largely targeted towards the clergy, monks, and nuns within the church, mm-hmm. and mostly, or a lot of it, focused around the topic of church corruption. So at the time, there was a conflict between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire over the power to appoint bishops, whether the Holy Roman Emperor, who is you know, essentially a secular leader despite the holy in his title, should be able to appoint bishops, or whether that power should only rest with the Pope. Yeah. And by extension, how much political power bishops should have versus only having spiritual power. Mm-hmm. Hildegard was a strong critic of political involvement in church appointments and also of connecting political and spiritual power. Okay. I so, agree, Hilda, but, you know. <laughs> these are some spicy lectures she's yeah. giving. Are we going to get more sick burns? Yeah, we are. All right. <laughs> And she also talks a lot and is very critical of the practice of simony, which was basically purchasing church offices for the political power that came with them. Yeah. Queering, getting a bishopry, the practice of (laughs) (laughs) Cursed papers. (laughs) So we find these criticisms throughout her written work as well, both in her visionary works and in many of her letters. Mm -hmm. She was even in correspondence with both the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, and the Pope about these issues. So she wrote to Pope Anastasius IV in the early 1150s that by prolonging this conflict with Frederick about these powers and so on, rather than reaching a resolution, you are neglecting the king's daughter who is entrusted to you, that is, heavenly justice. You are allowing the king's daughter to be thrown to the ground, her beautiful crown and tunic torn asunder. (laughs) Not cool, Pope Anastasius. Surprisingly, despite her criticisms of their corruption, Hildegard's sermons were very popular amongst the clergy, and we see several examples of people writing to her requesting that she come back and preach at their church or their monastery or whatever again, or requesting transcripts of the sermons that she's already given to them. I mean, I'm assuming that, like, there's, as we know, a whole hierarchy within the church, and the vast majority of people are priests who are like, God damn, I can't progress my career because this rich guy bought a bishopric. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And Hildegard, in all her sermons and everything, is always clear to be like, this isn't a problem inherent to the church, this is a problem of corrupt individuals within the church, and there are good monks and priests and nuns and everything. And so I think that makes it a lot more palatable for people, because they immediately go, well, I'm obviously one of the good monks, and I see this corruption problem and want to combat it, rather than being like, oh, I'm being accused of corruption. And also she obviously has the power behind her of saying, I'm not saying this, God said this, which always helps. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. 
Frankly, I had a vision from God and God says that you should stop paying money to become priests is like a fairly straightforward. I would expect God to say that. Like, Yeah, like you can't really argue with that. No. Can you? <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our episode and I wanted to wrap up our discussion of Hildegard's life by talking about the esteem she was held in in her lifetime. So I've mentioned her letters a few times in this episode. People from all walks of life wrote to Hildegard seeking advice on all kinds of topics. So we have letters from monks, nuns, popes, royalty, and from ordinary people. And they're geographically spread across Central and Western Europe and even including the King and Queen of England. Oh, well. The letters range from requests for prayers and theological questions to all kinds of advice and not just spiritual or religious advice. So people ask her legal questions about how to manage their estates. Women write asking how to get out of bad marriages or how to conceive children. So she's just like straight up an advice columnist. Yeah. And we do get a glimpse through her letters as well of something of, you know, what the day-to-day life of someone who was recognized as a prophet would have looked like and particularly the overwhelming nature of the demands on her time and demands her advice. So one group of monks sent her a list of 35 theological questions, which range from whether the prophet Elijah needed physical food and clothes in heaven to uh, whether angels have the power to shapeshift, to what Jesus got up to between the resurrection and when he went up to heaven. And when she failed to send answers to these questions, they sent another letter saying, hey, where are our answers? We need to know this stuff. To which Hildegard responds, I labored on the answers to your questions, but I have not yet completed the writing I began because of the press of my affairs and because of the great infirmity that I have suffered for a long time. I've answered only 14 of the questions so far. That is like when people write to us and ask us questions that are like so specific and detailed that they're clearly trying to get us to write a paper. For <laughs> oh yeah, we yeah. get those. Yeah. <laughs> and so I sympathize with her and I think these monks are kind of rude. <laughs> I sympathize with her too because I always feel like we're not on top of our no, incoming we're not, mail. <laughs> we get too much, so and very relatable. It was very relatable yeah. content. I did think it was funny when I read this list of questions because I was like, this is like so clearly when you're just sitting around and chatting with people and these are questions that, you know, we would just Google. Obviously, you can't necessarily just Google what the prophet Elijah eats, but you know. But we they would... were like, best thing we can do is just straight up ask God. Who can call God? It's Hilda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess when you say it from that perspective, she has kind of created this problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it is also very clear, despite the fact that she was obviously overwhelmed by the demands on her, that Hildegard put a lot of thought and effort into replying to her letters. So she provides very personalized advice, which, if she knows the correspondent, is obviously suited as much to kind of what she knows about them and her understanding of them and their personality and their situation as it is just a kind of form response to whatever question they've asked. It's clear from her correspondent that many of the people writing to her were writing to her because of her status as a prophet and see her letters as having in themselves almost some kind of talismanic religious value. So Guibert, before he moved to Rupertsburg, describes how when he received a letter from Hildegard, he'd first place it on the altar and pray that he'd be worthy to read it then he'd open it and read it himself a few times and then he'd share it with the other monks in his community and allow them to read it and copy it out. So these letters are really, really held in this high religious esteem. Yeah, that is a lot of pressure. Yeah, that's why you can't just dash off some theological answers. Right, just be going through, Elijah, yes. What did Jesus do after the resurrection? Went out for drinks with his mates. <laughs> I forget um, what question two was. Can angels shapeshift was the other yes, question. Yes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I've changed my mind about Elijah. I don't think that he needs physical food and clothes in heaven because otherwise it wouldn't have been notable when Mary's whole body went up there. No, Elijah's whole body went to heaven too. That's why they ask. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, then he definitely doesn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks I mean, for he drinks wine every Passover. So. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, so I guess the answer is he does, but not like a huge amount. Yeah. yeah. Glad we cleared that up. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll make you a bonus episode where I just read you the 35 questions. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it is clear, though, that many of the people writing to Hildegard, and scholar Joan Ferrand notes this particularly comes from women, also felt a personal emotional connection with her beyond just seeing her as a conduit of, you know, the authority of God. And a lot of them write to her seeing her as a mother figure, a mental figure, and someone who's really supported them throughout their lives. So one abbess writes, I will always see you in my soul. I will always love you in response to her letters. Another writes, I want to have you who are filled with all charity in the place of my mother. So I thought I would wrap up my discussion of Hildegard's life on that nice point. Hildegard lived until the age of 81. Oh, nice. She passed away on the 17th of September, 1179, which is now celebrated as her feast day. She is recognized as a saint today, but that did take a very long time. I mean, that's normal. That's how Catholics are. (laughs) Okay, do you want to have a guess of when she was canonized? 1763. 2012. Oh, really? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Literally a thousand. 1,000 years. In the time she was alive and the time she died, the church was just creating this bureaucratic canonization process where previously they just kind of go, yep, your community venerates you and your local bishop has recognized you as a saint. We're good. They created this new process where there had to be a commission to look into what you'd done in your life and miracles after your death and then the Pope had to sign off on it. So because of that, that was never officially done to Hildegard, but over the centuries, people just generally talked about her as a saint to the point where even popes would just kind of assume she was a saint and talk about her as a saint. And eventually in 2012, they finally said, yes, Hildegard is a saint. So it was really just kind of they'd assumed she was a saint for so long that they were like, oh, we should actually sign off on that. I think so, yeah. <laughs> and now she's obviously very important to a lot of queer Christians today who are seeking role models who are both have a connection with the church but are also queer. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our content wherever you found this podcast. So we're on Podbean, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that really helps more people to find our podcast. And we also sometimes read our reviews out on this podcast. So you might hear your review read out loud. And Eli is going to read us one now. Okay. This review is five stars. It is from teach.efl, who is from Germany. Oh, nice. An episode oh, for you. wild, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's entitled, Love This Podcast, and it reads, Great podcast, love the episode about Anne Lister. Keep going, heart emoji, muscle emoji. Oh, well, we had, you know, more fake writing systems and yeah. Germany, so. Very yeah. fitting. I Very hope fitting. they enjoyed that. Yes. Sorry about our pronunciation. Yeah, they might have stopped already. Um, <laughs> If you need to find more Queer as Fact in between our episodes, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And you can also get in touch with us if you'd like to by emailing us at queerasfact at gmail.com or writing to us at our post box. If you want to find our address or links to any of that stuff I've mentioned, it's all on our website, queerasfact.com. If you'd like to support our podcast financially, you can become a patron and that gives you a variety of perks, including the chance to vote on our episode topics. This episode today was chosen by our patrons. Or you can buy our merch on Redbubble and wear the Queer as Fact logo on your body, which is a good excuse to talk to everyone around you about Queer as Fact. We'll be back on the 15th of April when Eli will be talking to us about the trial of 20th century Scottish aristocrat, doctor and farmer Ewan Forbes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.